Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary Podcast. Today, Pastor Jason Coker shares with us a teaching from Isaiah chapter 63, verses 9, that explores what it means to encounter God's presence in both the highs and lows of our circumstances in life. Listen now to Pastor Jason's teaching titled, Presence. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the fifth day of Christmas at the Oceanside Sanctuary. We're talking about the presence of God today, and our passage is from the lectionary Isaiah uh, chapter 7, verses 10 through 14. Today we're going to read through this and talk a little bit about something that I think is common with our experience of Christmas, and that is sort of the high that we all experience around Christmas time, uh, especially if you're an adult and you know, you were raised to sort of build up all of this energy and expectation and momentum and you go out and you shop and you put a lot of thought and effort into what you buy your kids or what you buy your family members or what you buy your spouse. And then afterwards, there's sort of that moment of now what? And I think that's true for almost all like major experiences in our life. There tends to be this tremendous buildup and anticipation and hopefulness and expectation and the thing comes and you experience it and maybe it isn't quite what you hoped it would be or maybe it is what you hoped it would be and yet there's still a kind of letdown afterwards like this isn't what I thought it would be and what we do with that feeling after times like this because we live in such a superficial existence That sometimes we think the most important thing for us to do is to pretend like everything is the way we thought it would be or pretend like everything is great and amazing and triumphant. We do that, I think, especially in church and especially as Christians. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But before we do, would you just pray with me? Father, as we come before you this morning and open up these words, we ask that you would imbue us with a sense of your presence today, with a sense that whatever is going on, whatever is happening around us, that we would become attuned to how you are present in our lives, how you're present in our relationships, and how you are the Lord uh, of our lives in every way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, the passage is up here on the screen. There's a little bit of a typo on the title. It's not actually Isaiah chapter 7. It's Isaiah 63. Uh, I'm just going to put up Isaiah 63 verse 9, and we're going to start off with this. This comes from our lectionary reading in this church. Sometimes uh, we will follow the lectionary, which is simply uh, weekly readings that some churches follow throughout the year. And during the holiday season, I really like when we follow the lectionary. What it does is aligns us with uh, tens of thousands of other churches around the globe, part of our denomination, not part of our our denomination, formal, informal, uh, high liturgy, low liturgy, no liturgy. It sort of doesn't matter. When you follow the lectionary, it sort of unites you with all these other congregations. Today's lectionary reading, interestingly enough, the first Sunday after Christmas Day is this, Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9. It says this, In all their distress, it was no messenger or angel, but his presence that saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. 
and he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Now, what I I find really interesting and, and fun about this passage is that it's set in the middle of a chapter, Isaiah 63, that really is a chapter of lament. And what I love about that is we're in the middle of the Christmas season, which is supposed to be the opposite of lament. Christmas is when we celebrate for 12 days the incarnation of God and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We celebrate Christ's birth. We celebrate the high point of the interaction of humanity and divinity as God is birthed in the flesh amongst us and becomes Emmanuel, God with us. All of that is this high celebration. And yet today, the first Sunday after Christmas, the lectionary has us reading from a chapter about lament. And I love that because of what I mentioned earlier, that oftentimes in the heights of our celebration, immediately afterwards, we feel a kind of letdown. Like this isn't quite what we expected. Some of you know this and some of you don't. So for those of you who don't know, if this is your first time hearing this, I apologize. Uh, But one of our congregants, Rick Love, passed away last night at about midnight. Rick Love was an important person in my life. He actually was a part of my former denomination. I knew him uh, for many years before I became a part of this church and before I joined this denomination. First met Rick in 2010 at a scholars conference that I attended where he actually gave a presentation. He gave a paper at that scholars conference on the importance of Christians entering into relationships with Muslims without judgment. And I thought, who is this man? I have to know this guy. This, this man who would stand up at a relatively conservative evangelical conference and say, we have to learn to have non-judgmental relationships with Muslims. His paper was received somewhat tepidly at that conference. And I thought, I, I got to get to know this guy. So I met him at that conference, and then we parted ways. And then uh, many years later, about two years ago, out of the blue, Rick and his wife, Fran, moved to Oceanside. California from Houston, Texas. And through some mutual friends, we were connected and he became a part of this congregation. And over about a two year period, he really impacted this congregation by helping us host Christian Muslim dinners, both here and at the local Majid, which is in Vista. We got to know some of our Muslim brothers and sisters through those dinners, got to hear their stories, got to hear their perspectives on God. It was an incredibly powerful and healing experience for many of us. And then about a year and a half ago, Rick got cancer, biliary duct cancer, and has been battling it for the past year and a half and just took a very dramatic turn for the worst on Thursday and passed away last night at about midnight. Uh, Yesterday, I was able to go and see him at Tri-City And I'm sure you all know what this is like, going to visit somebody in the hospital who is near death. It's a really hard thing to do. Uh, Have you noticed that it's really difficult to be with somebody who's in the midst of suffering and there's nothing you can do about it? And so I'm not really talking about Rick. Uh, Rick was was only able to breathe with the help of of a ventilator. He was non-responsive. Uh, but his, one of his daughters was there, and his wife, Fran, was there. And one of, one of the hardest things in the world is to be with somebody who is suffering, and to be with somebody who's grieving. 
Every single bit of us, I think, and maybe this is just me, but every single bit of us wants to fix it, right? Like wants to take away that suffering, wants to take away that pain. And oftentimes in the midst of that desire to take away somebody's pain and suffering, we say things that we think might be helpful, like, oh, he's in a better place. Or, you know, I know this is terrible, but it's God's perfect will that this would happen. And of course, those comments are meant to be comforting. They come from oftentimes the most well-meaning place. But for the person who's suffering, oftentimes that's not comfort at all to hear that God wants this terrible thing that's happening to them. And so over the years, I've learned not to say those things. Uh, I've learned not to say, this is what God wanted for you. I've learned not to say, this is all for the best. I've mostly learned just to keep my mouth shut, which I know is a great surprise to many of you. Uh, But I've mostly learned to just try to be quiet, um, just to try to listen. And man, that is hard. I think the only thing harder than being with somebody in the midst of grief and suffering and pain is to be somebody in the midst of grief and suffering pain alone. And that, I think, really is the whole point. The point is not to fix that person's suffering. The point is not to solve their problem. The point is to be with them. I tell you this story because that same kind of comfort is happening here in Isaiah chapter 63. I'm going to leave verse 9 up on the screen, but I want to back up a little bit and read a little bit more of it for you if I could. Isaiah chapter 63, starting in verse 7, says this. I will recount, this is Isaiah, by the way, obviously the prophet Isaiah, and he is in this case speaking to God. Oftentimes in Isaiah, what we have are oracles where uh, what's happening is God is speaking through Isaiah. But in this case, Isaiah is, of course, writing to the people of God, speaking to the people of God, but in a very real sense, also speaking this to God himself. Verse 7 says this, I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, because of all that the Lord has done for us. And the great favor of the house of Israel that he has shown according to his mercy, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So what we have is Isaiah saying to God, I'm here to remind you of the amazing things that you have done for your people. The amazing love and mercy that you have extended to God's people. Now, why would Isaiah be saying this? It's because this is very likely the very first utterance that occurred after the first destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And so imagine that. Imagine that you are a part of the people of God, that God has made promises to you that amount to, I am going to vindicate myself and I'm going to vindicate you in the eyes of all those around us. And part of that vindication is to establish you as a people. And part of establishing you as a people is to help you form this temple, this place of worship where you can be faithful to worship me and you can be faithful to what it means for you to be God's people and you can be faithful to the covenant and I can be faithful to you. And then 
out of nothing rises this beautiful temple as a tangible expression, not only of their worship, but of God's faithfulness to them. And so much of the Old Testament sort of culminates in the realization that God's people finally get what God says they're going to get, which is the establishing of them as a legitimate people in the region. And at the very center of their civilization is this big, beautiful temple that represents their God who has been faithful to them. And then their enemies come and destroy it. This thing that they have poured their generations into is flattened and destroyed by the enemies. The very enemies that God says would not prevail over God's people. After that happens, after it appears that all of God's promises have been leveled and made into nothing, made essentially worthless, after all of that, Isaiah, possibly amidst the rubble of the temple itself, says to God, I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord. The praiseworthy acts of the Lord, because of all that the Lord has done for us and the great favor of the house of Israel that has been shown according to his mercy. In other words, in the midst of what seems to be God's failure to do what God promised, Isaiah stands up and boldly reminds God, hey, This is what you said would happen. This is what you said would be true. You said we would not be defeated. You said that we would be people who could count on your promises. Isaiah is essentially reminding God of God's promises. And this is what happens when we lament. There's a whole book in this Bible called Lamentations, which is nothing but prayer after prayer after prayer of God's people angry and frustrated with God and standing up and saying, no, 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 this is what you said would happen. What's going on? We don't do that very well, I don't think. I don't mean just like you. I mean, we as Christians, I think, don't lament very well. We prefer stories of triumph and victory. And we prefer to pretend that we are being triumphant and victorious all the time. But here's a newsflash. Life is full of failure. Life is full of suffering. And life is full of death. And when those times come, it's not healthy or right or even theologically a good idea to pretend like everything is okay. God has given us a framework, even now, in the midst of Christmas, to remind God of God's promises to us and to say everything is not right. Everything is not entirely okay. That's the background to this particular passage. It's a a story of lament that recognizes the reality of life that can be full of destruction and difficulty in spite of our greatest hopes and desires. I haven't ever done this before in the middle of a sermon, but today I'd like to read a tweet to you. (laughs) Sometimes I quote authors, sometimes I quote books. Uh, Today I want to share with you a, 
a series of tweets by some person that I follow on Twitter, just a random person. This is it's not a theologian. This is not a, a famous person. But it's somebody who is on a public forum sharing their anguish and their frustration with God. And so I want to frame it that way, not because I want you to discount what this person says, but I want you to understand that this is a person sharing out of the rawness of their own suffering, and I find that meaningful. This is James Prescott on Twitter says this, I'm tired of being told that God will rescue me when he sat back and watched whilst I went through a major childhood trauma and then lost a parent. God didn't save me. He let me be emotionally scarred for life. No matter what he does in my life now, I still can't reconcile that with his inaction back then. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever wondered why God didn't intervene at a point in your life when you were experiencing genuine suffering, genuine trauma? Is it hard for you to show up sometimes at church or worship gatherings or conferences or Bible studies or prayer groups and hear people say that God will save you from all of your troubles when you have plenty of troubles right now and God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it? I don't think that we're being helpful to ourselves or others when we pretend that that's not a real place of suffering for a lot of folks. And my guess is we've all experienced that on some level. James goes on to say something that I found really profound and really important. So again, he said, no matter what he does in my life now, I still can't reconcile that with his inaction back then. Then he says, that's why I love Jesus. That's why I trust him, follow him, and see the divine in him. He was a social outcast. He lost a parent. He went through a major trauma. Just like me, he knows how I feel. The way of Jesus is to sit alongside someone in the pain, to acknowledge their pain, to hear it all, and to just hear it, to show solidarity with them, to love them. I think James gets it. I think James gets what we often miss in the church, and that is that the gospel isn't so much about you getting what you want. It's not so much about your problems being fixed or solved by some version of God that can be summoned like a genie from a lamp to grant us all of our wishes and to make us happy and successful and wealthy and wise. I think James gets that the gospel is about the God who suffers with us. About the God who comes alongside us. The God who did the hardest thing in the world suffered alone so that He could come alongside us while we're suffering, so that we will never be alone. In all their distress, it was no messenger or angel, but His presence. That saved them. His presence. 
right in the middle of Isaiah's lament, right in the middle of him reminding God of what God's promises were, Isaiah reveals what the good news really is at its heart. God's presence with you, with me, in the midst of all of this. This reminds me of Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. This is Abraham's covenant with God. You remember this story? It's one of the great stories of the faith for Judaism and Christianity. Abram sets out on a journey because God tells him there's something better for him. And he goes out on this journey in the middle of the night. God wakes him up. He leaves his tent. God says, Abram, go outside. I'm going to make you into a great nation, right? And Abram says, how is this even possible? I have no children. I'm an old man. God says, look up into the sky. What do you see? A sky full of stars. God says, this is what your offspring will be like. Like the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the beach is what your offspring will be. And it says, Abram believed him, and God counted it as righteousness for him because he simply believed that promise. But if you back up to verse 1, before he ever shows him the cosmic promise that one day that God's people will be like the stars in the sky, before that ever happens, in verse 1, God calls Abram out with this particular charge. He says, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. At the end of the day, the gospel is cosmic in scale. It is about God's promises to redeem all things everywhere and for all people. But before that, it is personal in scale. At the end of the day, it is about God's promise that God is with you. That your reward is not your offspring, that your reward is not your riches, that your reward is not your health. Your reward is God himself. That God is available and present, even in the midst of your sufferings, even in the midst of your loneliness. And that, I think, is a challenging gospel. Because it means God is calling us to have a sense of connection to God's own self. I think if there is anything that would be worthy for our church to focus on in 2020, it would be this. It would be, can we be a people, a group of people on this corner of Freeman and Topeka, a group of people who genuinely know how to practice the presence of God in our lives? Can I read you another quote? One of my favorite little books, The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a 15th century Catholic monk who wrote a little book that has had a profound impact on the world ever since. And in it, Brother Lawrence says this, let us occupy ourselves entirely in knowing God. The more we know him, the more we will desire to know him. As love increases with knowledge, the more we know God, the more we will truly love him. And we will learn to love him equally in times of distress or in times of great joy. Some of us have a hard time loving God in times of distress. 
because of our suffering. In those moments, God is with you. Some of us, weirdly, have a hard time knowing God in times of great joy. And in those moments, God is with you. Let's become a people who know how to connect to that sense of God's presence. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for this opportunity to gather around your word and to be challenged by how it is that you are calling us to be people who know how to practice your presence in our lives. We ask that you would grow us to become people who are able to be transformed by that sense of presence and share it with others, even in their times of distress, even in times when it seems like all of your promises have been laid waste and turned to rubble. Even in those quiet moments of loneliness when a big event has passed and we still feel lonely and let down, I pray, God, that you would become a real and tangible presence in our lives so that we can say that it was no angel or messenger who saved us, but it was the presence of God himself. Teach us that skill. Lord, give us that gift. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Part of learning to practice the presence of God is engaging in disciplines like prayer, fasting, solitude, and singing. And so today we're going to end with one of our familiar songs. I want to invite you to stand. And I want to invite you to genuinely open your heart and open your mouth and sing today and ask God while you sing to give you a sense of how God is present in your life today.